0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. Earlier this month, Toho Studios released Godzilla Minus One, the 37th film in the now almost seven decade old franchise. Godzilla has gone through many phases over the past 70 years, a symbol of Japan's nuclear fears, a cuddly defender of humanity, a Japanese cultural icon, and now the centerpiece of another Hollywood cinematic universe. Well, it was 2024's Godzilla that launched the whole thing, with a story written by Japanese author Shigeru Kayama. He also wrote the novelization for the movie and its sequel, Godzilla Strikes Again, both now translated by Jeffrey Angles. Dr. Jeffrey Engels is a professor and advisor of Japanese in the Department of World Jangla's Literatures at Western Michigan University. He is also a prominent translator of modern Japanese literature with several volumes of Japanese literature in translation to his name. His book of poetry won the Yamiri Prize for Literature, making Jeffrey the first American ever to win his prestigious prize for a book of poetry. Today, Jeffrey and I talk about these Godzilla novels, how they differ from the movies, and how they start this monster's journey to become a cultural icon. So, Jeffrey, thank you for, for coming to the show today. You know, perhaps it's it's best to start by asking you know, what exactly are these novels and how do they tie into the production of the Godzilla movies?
0: Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. Oh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. I'm really happy to uh, have the chance to talk to you guys and uh, nerd out a little bit about Godzilla, one of my favorite monsters, one of the world's favorite monsters, in fact. So um, these novels, um, the novels that were published uh, earlier this year, um, October uh, 2023, um, were novelizations that were written by the same gentleman who wrote the first drafts of the movie, the first two movies in the Godzilla franchise. Um, the, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, the very first Godzilla movie came in 1954, um, towards the end of the year in 1954. So we've just um, we have just gone past uh, Godzilla's 69th birthday, and uh, 70, uh, his 70th birthday will be coming next year in uh, 2024. Um, but uh, Godzilla was the movie was immediately a great hit. Um, And uh, very quickly after the first movie came out, uh, Toho Studios um, uh, spoke to the gentleman who had uh, drafted the script for the first movie and, um, and asked him to do a second movie. And um, right about the same time that he was drafting the second movie, um, he sat down and wrote um, the, uh, these novelizations of the first and second movies. Um, and so the second Godzilla movie, um, Godzilla Raids Again, or in Japanese, Gojira no um, came out in uh, 1955. And so very close to the time that the, the second movie came out, the novelizations of both the first and the second movie came out. So, um, so in a way, these are, uh, the, the film came first and these stories came later, the written version came later. Um, but, um, these are still, I think, important books um, because they were written by the same gentleman who, um, you know, sat down and came up with a lot of the ideas um, for Godzilla. In fact, I think probably this writer, um, Shigeru Kayama, um, uh, deserves to be known as the father of Godzilla because he basically sketched out the um, the entire, um, uh, you know, first story that really gave birth to this to this iconic monster. So, um, you know, very often I think that we think of novelizations as something like a kind of, um, you know, silly or maybe chintzy um you know uh, product that came afterward as the studio tried to market the uh, and make money off the film but i'm not sure i don't believe that that's the case here i think that these uh because they're written by the same gentleman who you know worked on the first two films they seem to have a lot of kind of cultural value i think maybe a good a good comparison would be arthur c clark's um 2001 um arthur c clark worked on the movies and then uh, then he wrote the novelization um you know based on the movies. But but you know, that hasn't stopped um, you know, generations and generations of fans from reading Arthur C. Clarke's um you know version of the the story. Um I think the same is true here. Um the these Godzilla novels have been in print for decades and decades and decades. They've gone through many, many reprintings in different companies and um they're easily available in the Japanese bookshelf in any large bookstore. So um so it's really I hadn't realized this at first, <laughs> and I, I when I realized that the, that these novels were out there and that strangely um, nobody in the literary world had really paid a lot of attention to them, um, I was like, "Oh my god, this is such a great project! Why not sit down and do it?" That is strange.
1: You know, you think like because um, cause the way the way the I mean, it's true. It's like it's like this. We we've uncovered this this novelization of these really popular movies that never got translated and then as you say they're yeah. all over japan because like it's, right, it's not right. a secret
0: <laughs> right not a secret
1: at all um but i do want to quickly ask about about the movies maybe just one more question about, the before we were about sure. the novelization. um yeah you know and, and you know kind of when after your translation is kind of like how the movie Got it. Start. So, kind of, what what's right. the history behind the movie? Why did Toho decide to take a chance on this on this monster flick?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, um, in early 1954, there was a producer from uh, Toho Studios by the name of Tomoyuki Tanaka, um, you know, uh, who has behind a lot of big projects for Toho Studios. Um, he was working with uh, Toho Studios to make a film about. Um, a Japanese soldier who was working with the Indonesian um, independence movement. And so he was um, down in Indonesia um, uh, uh, working on the uh, preparations for this film when uh, political tensions between Indonesia and Japan ended up uh, causing some trouble and Indonesia revoked its uh, permission for Toho Studios to film. So here was uh, this producer, Tanaka, in Jakarta, I think. Um, I think he was in Jakarta. Um, and he, he found himself suddenly without a project. And he was worrying, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And he got on an airplane uh, from uh, Indonesia back to Japan. And uh, the story is that while he was in the airplane, um, he was reading a trade magazine, which um, had an article about the American film uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, Which was also about a radioactive monster, a gigantic radioactive monster who is, you know, spawned up in the, um, uh, who's, sorry, who's uncovered up in the northern parts of Canada, wanders down to New York City, um, and, you know, uh, along the way destroys a lot of things. So... um, Tanaka, reading this article and reading about how successful this movie was in these states, began to wonder if there wasn't space for, like, Toho Studios to work on a gigantic monster film as well. Um, you know, he wanted something quick. He wanted something that 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 they could do fairly soon, Um um, I don't think that when he um when he you know came up with this idea on the airplane, he realized that this would turn into one of the most expensive Japanese films ever made up till that point. <laughs> so um uh but uh one one more thing that's kind of um important to mention here is that earlier that same year, um uh Japan had become embroiled in a really ugly international incident. Um, there was a, a group of Japanese fishermen who happened to be um, out fishing for tuna in the area around the Marshall Islands. And um, the Marshall Islands, uh, in a place called Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands, um, the American military happened to be testing its new hydrogen bombs. Um, this was done in secret. Um, and these uh, group of Japanese uh, fishermen just happened to get caught up in the nuclear blast as they were going by. Um, very quickly, this uh, these poor fishermen who just happened to wander, you know, into the wrong place at the wrong time, um, you know, rushed back to Japan. Um, uh, the 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 fishermen on the boat were extremely sick, uh, and with one of the gentlemen on the uh, the boat died within the year. So, uh, so, you know, and all the other, um, fishermen who were in the boat there kind of came down with radi- uh, 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 radiation, uh, sickness, um, quite quickly. So, um, so these Japanese fishermen at the beginning of 1954, go back to Japan. This becomes a big scandal because it reveals to the Japanese public that the Americans are testing bigger, badder, more horrifying bombs than the ones that had been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, um, Critics referred to this incident with, the, with these um, poor fishermen getting bombed as the third time that Japan had been bombed by um, America's uh, atomic weapons. So this was a huge deal. Um, this was on the front page of newspapers, right and left. Um, and in the government's subsequent uh, 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 investigation, they discovered that like a lot of the fish that were coming in from the Pacific had been irradiated at some point. So like this whole incident with the, with the fishermen revealed that to the Japanese population that like, you know, concerns about radioactivity and, you know, atomic weapons, hydrogen bombs and so on, you know, these were not just like theoretical things. These weren't something that were terribly far away from the Japanese population. In fact, like these decisions that the American military were making were affecting Japan directly. And, um, you know, radioactive fish were making their way into Japanese stomachs. So anyway, so, um. Back to, uh, to Tomoyuki in Indonesia, 1954, this had just happened, you know, this incident was still going on, it was still front page news. And so um, when he read the article about the beast from 20,000 fathoms, um, he kind of came up with the idea of sort of linking um, the fear of radioactivity that was, you know, rampant in Japan at the time, to the idea of a radioactive monster so in a way like godzilla when it was created in 1954 was extremely topical it was related to um you know things that were actually happening in the headlines in, in japan at the time um i should just add uh quickly that um that uh that uh the uh uh <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here <laughs> for a second. Uh, I apologize for that, Nicholas. <laughs> I'm thinking about too many things to say at once. Um, is there, mm. could we trim this little part right here? Oh yeah, yeah,
1: I'll, I'll make a note to um, uh, to trim this
0: part of the answer. Okay, yeah, so what I wanted to say was this. Um, one of the things that we should remember is that in the story, um, in the movie, and then of course in these novelizations, is that Godzilla is awakened by a hydrogen bomb blast. Uh, it's the nuclear testing that's done by a country that's unnamed in the in the novel um, and in the film, but uh, that 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 awakens the 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 monster and starts the entire incident. So this. Uh, in a way this the whole conception of Godzilla is closely tied to these historical events that were going on in 1954
1: um so let's talk about the the novelizations i mean sure people always look at the novelizations and and they find subtle differences expansions compared to the movies um, uh, I know people constantly study the, the Star Wars novelizations for this reason. Um but 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 in your view, kind of, kind of what are the differences between the Godzilla movie and the Godzilla novelizations? Do some things get highlighted? Do some things not get as highlighted? Um, some on like what what are some of the differences between between the movie and the novelization?
0: Yeah. Um so uh... First of all, um, uh, Kayama, the, the gentleman who you know drafted the first uh, screenplay, you know, he, uh, I should mention that in um, May of 1954, he gives Toho Studios his his concept of what the Godzilla story should be. And then for a while he stepped back and the the people at Toho Studios went ahead and made their film. So in the course of making the film, they sometimes diverged from the scenario that uh that Kayama had given them in the first place. Um the, you know, in working with the special effects directors, um uh Eiji Tsuburaya, um, and some of the other folks who were involved with the film, you know, Godzilla took on its own particular shape and form. Um, When Kayama sat down to write the novelizations, in some ways, he referred to the film um, and he uh, adapted, you know, he took things that were in the film um, and put them into the novelization. But in other places, he tried to restore elements of the original story that he felt were left out a little bit. And one of the elements that he really highlights in the novelization is the anti-nuclear uh, message in the text. Um, if you watch the film, you'll see that um, at the very beginning of the film, um, there is a strange blast um, at sea, um, which happens with with a, a bunch of guys who are in a boat that's named um, the Ekomaru number no. five, uh, the glory number no. five. And um, anyone in you know, Japan who watched that in 1954 would recognize that this was like a kind of close reference to the real historical boat, the real historical fishermen you know, who were bombed. Um, the name of their boat was the, uh, the Fukuryumaru uh, number five, uh, the Lucky Dragon number five. So, so, you know, there's a, there's a slight hint in the film that, you know, this is related to these kind of historical incidents, but that's about as far as the kind of parallelism goes between history and, you know, the story. If you sit down and you read the novelizations, you'll see that um, it starts out with a long diatribe written by Kayama himself. Well, maybe not long it's less than a page i guess yeah. but um but in it he says that you know i've written the, the godzilla story because i'm really concerned about the the state of the world with all these you know terrifying um, atomic and hydrogen bombs out there um you know he says he warns that um if Atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs were used, then, you know, it wouldn't just be big cities like Tokyo and Osaka that would be destroyed. The entire earth would likely be laid waste. And he concludes his um, introduction by saying, as one small member of that movement, I've tried to do my part by writing a novel, the tale that you now hold in your hands. Reading this book in that context will make it all the more informative and interesting. So, like we see, like right in the um, in the prologue to the book, that he has uh, decided to really bring out the uh, the anti-nuclear subtext, um, and we see that you know in a number of places throughout the novel as well. Like he's a little bit more heavy-handed in talking about you know nuclear tests. Um, the characters are very um cognizant of the fact that it was hydrogen bombs that awoke godzilla from his slumber under the sea and uh, they remind the reader of that at multiple points over the uh, over the course of the novelization so that's one theme that uh that kayama really emphasizes more in the books than in the film um there are some other differences uh, which some of them are kind of quirky <laughs> and uh, maybe a little bit even difficult to explain <laughs> there's there's one in the uh, in the novel uh, uh, a change in the novel that doesn't exist anywhere in the film um, as Tokyo is being destroyed by Godzilla um, in the novel um, the, there emerges some... Guy um, who at first no one knows who he is, and um, putting up posters all over Tokyo saying, "Ah, yes, you know, our great Lord Godzilla is is come ac- uh, upon us. Everybody bow down before his greatness and tremble in fear, and, you know, things like that," and um, and so suddenly Tokyo, who's reeling from the Godzilla disasters, um, is. Uh, Surprised by this new threat and they wonder who are these people putting up posters everywhere? Um, who is the Tokyo Godzilla society? um and uh, later on in the novel, it turns out that this is uh, spoiler alert here. Um, it turns out that this is the work of a criminal who seems to be you you know laying the groundwork to start exploiting the the population. Um, it's not exactly clear what he's planning on doing, or it's not even necessarily clear why Kayama decided to write this little bit of a subplot into the story at all. But um, yeah, my theory is that, like, you know, uh, Kayama knew, um, as someone who lived through World War II, that there are always people who will use disasters for unscrupulous purposes, you know, to advance their own agendas and to trick other people and to manipulate the population. So um, I think in some ways he might be referring to that kind of thing. But but that's one really interesting, quirky uh, divergence between the film and, and the books. Um.
1: You know, I w I, I wanna ask kind of what do you think of the the Godzilla novels, you know, as as pieces of literature. Um yeah. you know, I mean I, I, I read them, um uh-huh. and you know, they're they're not they're not exactly, you know, works of high literary fiction. And there's nothing right, wrong right. with that. As someone yeah. who like has a fond love for certain Star Wars books, there sure. I, I have no ground to stand on in terms right. of judgment. No, no, no. <laughs> um <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: but it but is kinda like people kind of show up and be like, Oh no, and then like Something happens. The other person would be like, "Oh no!" Yeah. So, like, it's
0: but like, how yeah. do you
1: how do you see the books kind of as works of literature?
0: Yeah. Um. So I, I should mention that Kayama, the the guy who who worked on these, uh, was a really pulpy writer. I mean, he was writing for. Um, he started out his career writing for a mass audience, and he wasn't necessarily writing for the intellectuals. Although there's, you know, very often, you know, intellectual elements in his work. Um, but he was really writing for a popular audience, and this is absolutely the case with these. Um, these were young adult books; they were written for a an audience that um, probably was in their teenage, adolescent years, and so um, you know they're perhaps not as complex as you know one might hope for um, if one is looking for kind of much more adult uh, style literature. Um, so, you know, they are they are relatively straightforward um in terms of plot and so on. Um uh, we don't spend like lots of time, you know, mulling around inside the the you know the interiors of the characters and their psyches and so on. Um, but you know, nonetheless, I, I do think that there's there's a lot in the stories that that make them interesting. And um and certainly their historical value, um and their popularity over the years, um, I think, makes them worthy to, to be read. Um, I've read, a, I've heard from a lot of people um, who've read them and say, "Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed the stories." Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, they are definitely a quick read. They are very accessible, I think, and mm. um, and I hope fun as well. Well, they certainly are fun. Um,
1: I do want to ask about. I mean, we we talked a lot about kind of like the first movie. The first movie is much more is is quite. yeah um but also the sequel you know godzilla strikes again um it does kind of have many of the the thing of the sequel it's like there's a new godzilla and there's a new monster (laughs) um uh but how but how quickly did this did this sequel come together and and how does it differ from from the first novel or slash movie
0: yeah. Um. So the uh the first film, the the 1954 film, was released in theaters uh, nationwide in Japan in November of 1954. So towards the end of the year, and um immediately there were like lines around the block, you know, um among with fans, you know, who wanted to go see it, people who wanted to go see it, um and so before the year was out um, the Toho Studios approached Kayama to come up with the plan for a second movie and uh, so in fact uh, he was sitting down and writing already the his ideas for the second movie around Christmas of 1954 so right at the end of the year um, uh so uh, the that film came out in theaters around the uh, uh just a few months into to 1955 so the sequel was produced with incredible speed um it said <laughs> i've read a bunch of articles that uh, that kayama wrote about like the, his involvement with kayama uh sorry with with godzilla and uh he said that, uh you know, at first when the studio approached him about writing the scenario for the second film, he was a little bit taken aback because at the end of the first movie, he so definitively kills Godzilla. Like there's a scene at the end of the first movie where, you know, they use this device called the oxygen destroyer to, you know, to, to. Sink into the ocean. And in the end of the first film, we actually see Godzilla writhing as the oxygen destroyer is getting him. Then we see his bones there for a second. And then um, even his bones dissolve into nothingness um, in the ocean. So when Toho Studios asked him to write a sequel and bring back Godzilla, he's like, Guys, you know, how on earth am I supposed to do that? We killed him off, don't you remember? Um, so, you know, Kayama wasn't necessarily, you know, crazy about the idea of bringing him back for a second film, but he did it anyway. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how we got the second film. Um, did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but actually, but let's let's talk about, about Kayama and kind of
1: maybe a bit more about who he was and maybe what he did after Godzilla. You note in, in, in kind of your note, John the Translation, that he always felt a bit uncomfortable with how Godzilla kind of became like how, how views of Godzilla changed after the movie came out. Um, maybe it's a bit more about who he was and maybe what he did after writing this very successful movie.
0: Yeah. Um, let me follow up with that, 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 that thought of uh, the, the first part of your question. Um, he, he, you know, Uh, undertook the second uh writing the the second film and of course you know the first and the second films he turned into the novels that i translated but after that he decided okay i'm done with godzilla um there was a a moment that i write about in the afterword i i included like a a sort of longish i think maybe 30 page or so um, afterward in which i kind of talk about the history of godzilla and so on um I, i mentioned in here that um Around the time that the second movie was coming out, uh, he happened to go into a dentist's office somewhere, and there was like a life magazine lying around that had a bunch of pictures of dinosaurs in it. And um, there was a little boy who was there, and he was looking through it, and he got all excited. And he's like, Oh my gosh, you know, dino- uh, he points at the dinosaurs and he says, You know, Godzilla, Gojira, look, it's Godzilla. And Kayama was rather taken aback by this, you know, and this is one, this experience kind of, uh, Confirmed to him something that he had already noticed that kids loved Godzilla, they were like fascinated with him. even though Kayama had created Godzilla as a representative of the horrors of radiation, you know, a a, a monstrous threat that might attack the Japanese population at any time. Um, Not because of anything that they've done, but, you know, just because, Um, you know, he he realized that that fear that he was originally trying to embody in Godzilla had kind of morphed into something else. You know, as you said, people felt like warm and cuddly towards Godzilla. They liked him. The kids liked him um kids were going to see the the second movie especially because of the cool battles between gigantic creatures you know so um he realized that godzilla was turning into something different than he had originally anticipated and he decided i'm not going to do any more it doesn't matter how much toho studios begs me no matter how much money they offer i'm not going to do it anymore um so so that's kind of, you know, that ended Kayama's involvement with the Godzilla franchise. Um, Kayama, after this, he does continue on to have a very long uh, career as a writer, um, as a pulpy, you know, sci fi adventure story mm-hmm. writer. Um, he even writes stories about ghosts, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. Um, and uh, if you you know, go and and get his complete works they stretch to i think was it 13 or 14 volumes um they're huge like they fill mm-hmm. up more of the entire bookshelf you know at my house so there's a he wrote a lot of stuff um but definitely godzilla is the most now iconic and representative character that you know he ever worked on
1: i mean maybe let's just kind of talk about then godzilla as A cultural icon you know he's kind of godzilla's gone through a lot of um different phases you you know it's it's funny you note the story about um you know kids are liking godzilla i know there was a phase in the middle where um things get a little goofy um there's mecha godzilla there's a baby godzilla i've seen i've seen the gif of dancing godzilla um then of course i think there then you have the movie from the late 90s that everyone hated including toho um but now I think you have this, people are trying to bring back Godzilla with both, was it, there's there's the new version of Godzilla, which is they're trying to bring back this idea of the, of the really destructive monster, was it with, with Shin Godzilla, and I guess Godzilla minus um, one, and of course you now have uh, the MonsterVerse out of Hollywood, which is, um oh god what's the title of the next movie coming out next year i've looked this up godzilla x kong the new empire coming out <laughs> yes, uh uh-huh. next april um i guess bringing back the other really famous kaiju uh king kong um but let's talk but maybe you can just wrap things up like how do you what are your thoughts on godzilla as a as a cultural icon and how it's kind of moved from you know big scary monster to to kind of one of japan's big cultural symbols um to maybe not trying to bring it back to it's it's more um let's say more uh i say natural roots kind of like like kind of more being like a force of nature um what are your thoughts on on godzilla as a cultural icon
0: yeah yeah um so uh yeah as you're right you're totally right in saying that godzilla has had lots of different phases um there's been even Godzilla fans will break up, you know, the different moments in the in the Godzilla universe. Um, uh, you know, talk about different phases of Godzilla, and uh, it, and you're right. Like you know, in the very first movies, and he represents a threat um, uh, around the time of the third movie. Um, uh, I mentioned. Uh, Kayama worked on the first movie and the second movie, um, which were released in 1954 and 1955, respectively. Um, He dropped out after that. And then for seven years, um, around seven years, uh, Toho Studios kind of didn't know what to do. Um, They didn't pick up Godzilla. I don't think that they thought that um, the second movie wasn't as successful as they had hoped for. And so, um, you know, they didn't do much with Godzilla. But in 1962, they brought back the Godzilla in a third movie called King Kong versus Godzilla. And that was a gigantic hit. Um, It was, uh, it was, it was definitely aimed for a younger audience. And it's really basically all about, you know, big fights between, you know, big, awesome monsters. And um, it made a lot of money. And so, uh, so that was sort of the reboot of Godzilla. And he kind of, for a while, he then, he took us much more kind of playful, um, form, um, in the fifth movie, um, which was released in 1964 Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. Um, he really becomes a protector of Japan for the first time against, you know, against an uh, an, uh, you know, against a threat that, um, that's affecting Japan and the entire world. So, you know, so he does kind of morph into a protector, um, like a, a kind of spiritual guide or something like that. Um, you know, as, as things move on. And so, um, you know, he, the, the, as a cultural icon, you know, he represents, you know, more than just one thing. At times he's, he's a threat, you know, at, at other times he's a protector. Um, very often in a lot of these Godzilla movies, there is a, a message somewhere. There's often environmental messages um, embedded in the Godzilla story. Um, so that's one thing that uh, that people have picked up on in you know subsequent um, you know iterations of the, the Godzilla stories. In your um, question to me, you you, uh, you mentioned Shin Godzilla, which was. Um, released um after the fukushima meltdown um, which took place in 2011. Um, i think the movie came out uh off the top of my head i can't remember i think it might have been 2016 or right around there Um, but you know in that 2016 movie it's you know there's a definitely like a reflection upon um, the new nuclear threat that japan is facing um Mm -hmm. uh, the environmental disaster that's unfolded after fukushima Um, And so we, you know, we see that like, you know, these questions of uh, like the Godzilla story is just so flexible that it allows Godzilla to become different things at different moments in time. And um, the very malleability of Godzilla, I think, is one of the reasons that um, he's become such a cultural icon. He's been used over and over again to tell different kinds of stories, sometimes stories about environmentalism, sometimes stories about corporate greed, sometimes stories about, um, about you know, uh, the, you know what the, the effective use of science by scientists and so on. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you could do with the Godzilla story. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that he's so kind of polyvalent and um, full of possibility. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I think that's a great place to end our interview with Jeffrey Engels, translator of Shigeru Kayama's Godzilla and Godzilla Strikes Again. Jeffrey, I actually have two final questions for you, which are uh, where can people find your work? Not just these books, but all of your work
0: and what's next for you what do you think the next project might be oh gosh thank you um so uh, so the book is available wherever books are sold <laughs> um it's available on uh you know the big booksellers amazon um, barnes and noble and so on it's available both as an ebook and as a as a physical book as well um uh, uh so uh that as well, as well as my other work, um, which you know tends to be rather different than this. Uh this is a bit of a, a fun kind of pet project for me. Um I've done a lot of translation of contemporary Japanese literature. Um uh I say contemporary, although you know I've I've also translated works as early as like the nineteen tens and nineteen twenties. Um but yeah, um, my translations are available again wherever books are sold. And um yeah, I I hope that people will go out there and explore a little bit of some of the Japanese poetry, some of the other Japanese novels that I've worked on as well. What's next? Um, I'm still in the process of thinking about it. Um, I'm really interested in a, uh, a novel written by a, a contemporary novelist by the name of Setsuko Tsumura, which describes her experiences as a young girl living through World War II. So... Um, uh it's a really beautiful novel kind of about her experiences falling in love with fellow schoolgirls, um and her um her uh, same-sex love um as the bombs were raining down in tokyo so that's one project that i'm working on right now but i'd also like to come back and i'd like to do some other books um there was a mothra novel as well um as probably some listeners might know mothra is another one of the very famous Mm -hmm. kaiju the very famous monsters that come out of japan and this was one that was based upon a novel the novel came first in this case but that novel has never been translated into english and so after i published the godzilla book so many fans wrote to the press that they said we want mothra next so we're in the process of looking forward to uh to to uh, to working on that. I'm um, still in the process of trying to get the rights, but I'm crossing my fingers that that will come to fruition.
1: Well, hopefully that works out. Um, it be very cool to read the Mothra novel, too. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, Stay tuned for more news who's coming up on the show. But before then, Jeffrey,
0: thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you today.